Hello and welcome to All Aboard, the UK's first podcast dedicated to transport, data and innovation, brought to you by ODI Leeds. I'm Neil McClure, Head of Transport Innovation at ODI Leeds and the Head of New Transport Dedicated ODI Leeds spin-off, Open Transport North. The subject of today's podcast episode is Hyperloop. Originally proposed by the entrepreneur Elon Musk in 2013, Hyperloop is a set of ultra-high-speed, magnetically levitated pods propelled through low-friction, low-emission tubes, or, in other words, really fast hover trains and tunnels. Kind of like something you'd see in Blade Runner. The first original plans uh, for a Hyperloop was to be built in the US to connect the 250-plus miles between Los Angeles and San Francisco. However, it seems possible now that the first commercial Hyperloop network in the world could be in the 100-kilometre stretch of the UAE between Abu Dhabi and Dubai. Hyperloop is most definitely still in concept stage, but in its first few years of ideation, it's gained a huge amount of traction, support and publicity. But today we want to find out more about just how likely it really is to ever come to the UK. Our guest today is Rosalind Walker. Hello, Rosalind. Hello. Rosalind works for TRL, Transport Research Laboratory. She is a transport consultant and recently authored a report titled Hyperloop, Cutting Through the Hype. So she's very well placed to talk to us today about Hyperloop. We'll make sure we put a link to that report in the podcast notes. So let's get on with it. Many people have heard about Hyperloop, but some may not be too familiar with the details of it. Can you tell us a bit more about what it actually is? Yes, of course. Um, so Hyperloop is a brand new form of transportation. Um, so it offers something significantly different to the existing car, rail, plane and boat. Hyperloop can be used to transport passengers um, or freight. As you said, it's uh, essentially a, um, a series of pods being moved inside an enclosed tube. The tube would, um, or is proposed to be based on um, pylons above ground. Um, so as you said, it would look rather like a hover rail but it also can be placed underground in tunnels. The, the environment within the tube, again, you mentioned, is a low air pressure, low friction environment, um, which allows pods to reach potential speeds of 760 miles an hour, which is really fast, yeah. um, so close to the speed of sound. But in order to achieve those top distances, you do need to travel quite a lot of distance, because obviously it takes time for you know, the, the speed to build up. So Hyperloop is not an intercity transportation system, it is an intracity transportation system, so getting you from one city to another. Pods would be transported direct from origin to destination without any stopping um, along the way, so uh, you get on in London and you go direct to Edinburgh with no stopping. Because it's super fast and there's no requirement to slow down for stations, the speeds um, that Hyperloop can achieve are massive, uh, really quick. So, uh, say, London to Edinburgh could be achieved in 50 minutes only. Wow. Um, so, under an hour. I did mention that there's no stopping points along the way, um, but um, the pod in front of you could potentially be stopping, and, and what it would do is switch out of the tube um, at any given point, um, or you could have a, a pod uh, switching into the tube. Um, so, there would be lots of different pods going to different places, but your particular pod would only go from one place to another. Pods would be launched at regular intervals, um, so every two minutes. Um, but Musk's original proposal um, was that you know peak times that that um, interval could be um, decreased to every 30 seconds. Um, 
and the capacity of the pods would be uh, between 28 to 40 passengers. But there are variations in design, so you mentioned the UAE, obviously they like luxury there, so there would be potential pods that might only host eight people, and then there's other designs or mentions of having 80 to 100 passengers per pod, so there's a, a variation. It's worth noting that pods will be fully automated, so there's no drivers and the system is proposed to be very low energy um, due to the uh, passive maglev design and that energy could also potentially be offset um, through use of renewables so for example having solar panels running across the top of the tubes so that's just a bit of a, a bit of an introduction to the system fascinating it definitely is does sound like something from uh, from blade runner <laughs> um so let's talk a little bit about some of the potential benefits of of hyperloop so so I guess I'm, I'm thinking there about benefits to passengers, and you mentioned a little bit already about yep. um, reduced journey times compared to other modes of transport, um, but also uh, the environment, um, the economy, etc., um, and maybe give a, a bit of an idea of, of, of each of those. Yeah, so if we take those in terms, so if we look at passengers to start with, um, well, Elon Musk's original proposal suggested very low ticket price, uh, specifically $40 return between um, Los Angeles and San Francisco, um, which would make it very affordable for the masses. Um, so that's a very a good benefit for passengers. And Quicker and cheaper than flying. Exactly. <laughs> um, I'll go into a little bit more detail about travel time later on, but um, it will be significantly faster than other modes that we have, you know, air, air or um, train currently. So that, that's obviously a benefit to passengers. Um, it'd be very convenient. So there's no pre-booking. You just turn up. It's an on-demand system, so pretty similar to the tube. Um, so you don't need to worry if you know your um, previous transports delayed you by 20 minutes and you missed the, the, the. There's no specific ticket that you've got. You know, you can just turn up and go onto it. So it's very convenient. Um, and also, um, it proposes that it would be. Uh, much more safer than uh, existing modes of travel um, so obviously because it's on pylons within an enclosed tube um, it's not vulnerable to extreme weather effects the pod wouldn't interact with any other types of transport or wildlife so there'd be no crashes um, and also because I mentioned it was fully autonomous it's not subject to human error um, and if we look at things like um, autonomous vehicles that's one of the major kind of benefits of autonomous vehicles the lack of human interaction from an environmental perspective Again, I mentioned the fact that it would be a low-carbon system. So um, if it could be low-carbon and, in fact, self-sufficient and there was mass adoption of Hyperloop, then that obviously could go some way to decarbonise the transport sector. Um, also, there's air pollution benefits. So if we're taking cars or even better freight vehicles off the road, then obviously we can reduce the air pollution elements associated with those. The economic benefits are um, quite diverse. So Musk predicted that the infrastructure costs would be quite low. In fact, they would be a tenth of the costs of the uh, current Californian high-speed uh, rail project that's going ahead. And the basis of that was essentially that um, the pylons, um, because obviously the whole transportation system wouldn't be sitting on the ground, it would just be pylons that would be in uh, low land rents and also that they would utilise existing right-of-ways on the motorways and the rail structures. Um, so that would help reduce the cost of infrastructure. From an economic growth perspective, there's a few things. So firstly, um, you know, there's the job creation um, you know, building a new infrastructure, especially for, say, for example, um, the UK, um, whether we have it in, you know, this country or not, we've got lots of skills to offer in that sector, in that space, um, particularly in things like our expertise in aerospace. Um, 
There's also the fact that if you can shorten journey times between one city to another, um, that can help um, bring labour and commercial cup markets together. So essentially, you wouldn't necessarily need to live in the city that you work, um, and we could fully utilise the skills across the UK. So if we had somebody really clever in Scotland, they could get on the Hyperloop on a daily basis and go to London to use those skills you know, as best as we could. As- especially if it's as cheap as Elon Musk claims it's going exactly. to be. Exactly. 40 um, quid return yeah. from San Francisco we'll, to LA. Is- and we'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, uh, Another thing would be um, in terms of the application of Hyperloop freight, um, you know, if we can get goods from A to B much quicker, then obviously it's much more productive, more efficient, um, and a particular application of Hyperloop, which we'll go on to talk to a bit more later, um, is around port terminals and getting product and containers inland quickly through Hyperloop. Hyperloop would serve to boost tourism, so you know some geeky people might well travel specifically to a country to go and experience a new transportation system. I know Japan um, is obviously uh, a major kind of tourist attraction is the bullet train and you know the maglev train. So some people will um, travel specifically to go to a Hyperloop. Um, Otherwise, Hyperloop makes it much more easy for people to travel a country because they can get from A to B much easier, so it will um, attract people who have maybe not a lot of time on their hands but want to see a country. And also there'll be a a, a real benefit to um, cities that aren't capital cities, so, you know, people might just come to the UK and just hit London and say, yeah, I've done the UK, but now they can potentially get to, you know, Edinburgh or Birmingham or wherever, so pockets of um, countries would see a much bigger surge in tourism than previously. Um, and then lastly, just um, because people can um, live in one, one place and travel to another um, to work, um, there isn't going to necessarily be, um, you know, places like London wouldn't necessarily have such um, expensive houses because people could live out elsewhere and so it would help to level the general cost of um, housing across countries. So that's it really, yeah. yeah. So there's quite a lot yeah. of benefits for um, an all round really. Your report that you published has um, summarised the key question I think that a lot of transport professionals have about Hyperloop. And and to use your words, um, is this new technology a revolutionary development in mass transit or is it just another beneficiary of the Elon Musk effect? Is is this amazing futuristic transport um, system that you outline ever actually going to happen? Um, well, I think it's first worth saying that um, those that are developing Hyperloop have said they will commercialise it by 2021, but we're already in 2019, so that is very ambitious. But that date has been in stone for quite a few years, so it's not something they've just come out with yesterday. So I think it's probably unrealistic to say that we will see it by 2021. So as you said, my report um, is really around understanding what those claims were and then analysing them from an objective perspective to say... You know how valid are they and what is the future potential of Hyperloop. Um, so in the report um, that you can obviously have a look at, um, I looked at travel time, capacity, land implications, energy demand, cost, safety and passenger comfort. Um, overall, I believe um, that some of the claims around Hyperloop are not realistic um, you know, when you start delving into the detail and start questioning some of the, the detail that they've proposed. Um, so as an example, um, I'll just go through travel time. So Hyperloop testing to date has only achieved speeds of between 200 and 300 miles an hour. Um, so there's quite a way to go to be able to achieve the, the kind of proposed 760 mile per hour top speed. Um, but a lot of the, the issue that they've got at the moment is that the tracks that they're using to test aren't, aren't very long. So if we give them the benefit of the doubt that you know, those speeds could be achieved, 
then certainly it would rival other modes of transport. So if we looked at that example of Hyperloop, which is 50 minutes London to Edinburgh, by air, that's one hour and 10 minutes. Um, and by rail, um, it's three hours and 38 minutes. And that's after HS2 has been delivered, um, which has um, cut the, the time by about 30 to 40 minutes. Um, so yes, absolutely, Hyperloop is faster. Um, but my belief is that to have a f true understanding of travel time, you need to look at the overall travel time. Um, so there's a number of factors that might might change that decision. Um, so transit time. So due to the space constraints we have in cities, it's very unlikely that Hyperloop would be situated in cities and would have to be pushed to the outskirts of cities. Um, and therefore, um, the passenger experience would be rather similar to going to travel to an airport out of city and transit times particularly in places like London are can be quite lengthy. On top of that uh, Hyperloop is a massively high profile asset or would be a massively pro high profile asset and subject to terrorism threats um, or the potential um, terrorism effects and as such um, there would need to be some element of security screening. Whether that would be as extensive as it is at airports I'm not sure but certainly that's something that we don't need to do when we get on trains currently. Also, um, because it's an on-demand system, you may be lucky and turn up and you can just jump straight onto one, but there may be times when there's, there's long queues to get onto Hyperloops um, because the capacities aren't that big. Um, so essentially, um, in rush hour, um, you know what it's like trying to get on a tube. So um, there could be additional buffer time there as well. All of those issues I've just discussed are um, fairly similar to airport issues, you know, you do have long boarding times, uh, screening times, transit times for airports, but they're not issues for trains currently. Um, so that three hour 38 becomes a lot more appealing. Um, and, and you'll know yourself, why do people not travel London to Edinburgh always on a plane? It's potentially because of price, but often it's just because they can't be bothered. They can't be bothered with all those extra time elements. Um, it's much easier to sit on a train. So I think Hyperloop does have that speed potential, but there are a lot of other factors that need to be taken into account. And I think, you know, it's people just kind of see that initial figure and fall in love with the concept of it, but actually the reality is that something's different. Um, so just give you an overview of the other key findings uh, within my report. Um, from a cost perspective, um, I felt that the construction and the operating costs were massively underestimated by Musk, um, and actually the ticket prices that would therefore be a lot higher. Capacity is a, a big challenge. The overall capacity of the system would be equivalent to flights. Um, however, it falls significantly short of, of um, HS2 and other kind of high-speed developments, uh, rail developments. The energy, um, there was so, such a limited information on you know, what the energy requirements would be. Uh, it was all quite vague. Um, so there's a need for real-world kind of demonstration projects to really understand that. Um, from a land perspective, this is again another a big challenge, is that the system um, to be able to reach those um, full speeds needs to have um, tubes that are really straight um, to restrict lat lateral forces um, to ensure passenger comfort, which would therefore mean you either are able to um, build straight tubes or you need to go in, underground, which then kind of hikes up the cost in terms of tunnelling. Safety, another key concern, there's lots of gaps in the information on risks um, which would require a lot more interrogation and testing. And then passenger comfort, uh, again, uh, equally there's some significant barriers to overcome regarding human factors, so what is the noise implication for passengers and also the communities that um, it resides in. What is the vibration effects on the body, there's just no kind of understanding on that. Um, you know, what's the impact on motion sickness? Uh, the impact on the body for accelerating, decelerating forces, and what would be the mental strain of uh, travelling in enclosed environments without windows in the tubes. So there are, um, yeah, 
lots to consider. Yeah. Lots to consider, yeah. And there's lots in there. I think the thing that jumps out for me on the on the cost side particularly is um, sort of maybe how how smart really um, Elon Musk has been with kind of leading with that um, forty dollars San Francisco yeah. to LA, um, you know, estimated uh, price to the consumer. It clearly, is an attempt to try and win hearts and minds of people with this. Um, crazy fantasy transport system for the future. Mm. Um, I suppose that's all based on, or go back to some of your uh, challenges around his assumptions around cost. Yeah, and and that cost is going to going to differ, right? If you if you're implementing this between Abu Dhabi and Dubai, as we spoke about before, where there's um, there, there's little urban development between between there, mm. installing a tunnel network might be relatively simple, simpler than a densely populated. Um, country like the UK. Yeah, I mean, UAE would not need the tunnels at mm. all because there's just a desert environment, and also they would be willing to put money behind it, so that would help. And yeah, I suppose then you're into state subsidies mm. of passenger travel in in that type of network, and and that that might be more likely to to be achieved in in a country like the UAE than than others. Yeah. Um. So I wanted to move on to talking slightly more specifically about. The UK, yeah, um, and and I know um, in your report you, you, you touched on that um, with some examples there. Um, how how could implementation of Hyperloop happen in the UK? Yeah, so there's a, a few potential applications of uh, Hyperloop for the UK. One would be, as we talked about, to connect cities. Um, so there are a few routes that have been proposed already. Um, one is for Edinburgh to London, uh, which would run through Birmingham, Manchester, and there's another one which is. Uh, Glasgow through to Liverpool which runs through Edinburgh, Newcastle, Leeds and Manchester Um, and both of those are actually really positive for the north because um, what they'll do is help to kind of firstly better connect the north to itself and also help to connect the north to the south Um, so um, the idea of those kind of proposals is to um, you know balance, rebalance the growth across the UK um, and the country's social uh, economic inequalities so it's quite exciting really for the north particularly um, the other potential applications is to connect airports. So <clears throat> Hyperloop could be um, used to connect all the key airports in the UK or the, the airports that are surrounding the London kind of network, um, which would help to create a large international air transport hub and make us much more competitive internationally on the, the aerospace um, perspective. Um, at the moment, you know that we have issues around capacity and this would allow us to fully utilise the, the national air co- airport capacity rather than you know, Heathrow having to build an extra uh, runway or, or Gatwick, etc. So um, there's potential there. Another potential would be around port logistics. So um, in recent years, we've seen the rise of megaships, um, which is, you know, stumbling our ports because they have to move large quantity of product um, off ships very quickly and then find somewhere to put it. So I feel that Hyperloop could play a role in getting that inland as quick as possible. So I think there are some exciting applications of Hyperloop for the UK. The, the big stumbling block, and there's a few, but the biggest is um, around landscape. So um, we talked about the fact that Hyperloop had to run through um, straight tubes. Uh, we have a very hilly t- topography, particularly in the north. It's beautiful to walk, but you know it's not so great for Hyperloop. Um, we have dense urban spaces. We have uh, extremely high land values, and we have a number of protected landscapes as well. So that makes um, Hyperloop very difficult um, to implement. The, the way in which it could potentially be implemented is through tunnelling. You know, you know, we talked about the UAE not needing the tunnels. We definitely would need tunnels in this country for Hyperloop. And also, I think personally that we would have to locate the terminals outside of city centres. Um, 
which where there's more space for infrastructure, but also um, less for safety risk, for, you know, than running through dense urban spaces. Um, so yeah, that's that's my views. The the examples that you mentioned about the potential routes in the UK. Yeah. Who's proposed them? Is it is it the government, Department for Transport, or is it private organisations equivalent to um, Elon Musk and Virgin Hyperloop and some of those organisations? Yeah. Where have they come from? Um, those ideas were um, part of a competition that Virgin Hyperloop ran um, called Global Challenge, I think it was. Um, so they um, asked lots of different people across the world to come up with ideas around potential routes. Um, and essentially it was getting you know that student body or whoever to do the, the groundwork so they would have to look at the potential route from an economic perspective you know all the different variants and and um they would have to meet with people like the dft to or local kind of transport authorities to understand you know some of the challenges the you know the interest etc so both of the routes that i mentioned then i think there is another one as well um were winners of that global challenge competition um, there was 10 routes um across the world that won two of them were for the uk um so that's where those routes have come from but um yeah so to continue the the theme about the uk we know the uk we know about the uk government and their decision making around transport infrastructure investment um so the hyperloop tech may work in principle but what do you see as the main challenges um so yeah so we talked about the fact that hyperloop in the uk would have to run in tunnels um that is obviously there's a massive capital cost associated with that there's challenges around how you would maintain hyperloop in tunnels and how more importantly how would you evacuate passengers in the instance of an emergency um, and also there's parts of the UK that aren't suitable for tunnelling due to local geological conditions um, but there is a positive outlook um, Elon Musk um, himself is actually working on um, uh, what's called Boring Company which is around trying to reduce the costs um, of tunnelling but also you know, speeding up the process or how, how can we do tunnelling quicker um, so people are working on reducing that kind of impact um, also, the um, required diameters of the tubes would be quite small, so um, the cost of tunnelling might be a lot less than it would be for, say, high-speed rail. And also, through doing tunnelling, you could potentially um, speed up things like the planning process um, and issues associated with requiring uh, rights of way. So it doesn't mean tunnelling is a complete disaster. There are just some challenges that need to be overcome. Um, I, su- I suppose the second thing is, um, is there a political will to support the development of Hyperloop um, in the UK because really for it to be successful it needs government and community backing um, and, and the reason why is that it's, it's going to be a lot more expensive and I've mentioned that the infrastructure costs were massively under undersubscribed so um, yeah then there'll need to be a public uh, subsidy to support Hyperloop and therefore the government needs to be backing it and also there are relevant land permissions that will need to be achieved um, and again if the government's not backing it then we can't really progress with that and um, I think if you look at some of the challenges that HF, HS2 have had yeah. um, and they are numerous yeah. um, uh, then, then this this would be a, a comparable um, investment on behalf of UK government absolutely um, and yeah, and I can I can see many many challenges in, in getting the UK government to, to buy into that exactly and I think another challenge is about regulation so this is a brand new form of transport and our regulation is outdated and not appropriate for emerging modes of transportation and we've seen that issue with automatic um, automated vehicles also that you know that the current legislation is just not appropriate for that so there's going to be a tremendous amount of work to work on new safety standards new legislation standards and new insurance standards um so that's going to be quite a slow process yeah you, you spoke about political will there um 
what is what is the attitude of 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 the government? What's the position of the Department for Transport on yeah. on, on Hyperloop? Um, uh, you tell us a little bit about about where we are with that. Yeah, so if we start with HS2, as you mentioned that, um, the government has uh, already committed a lot of money to um, HS2. A growing amount of money. Exactly, and it's growing every day. So um, that's a major infrastructure project for the UK for the next decade or so. And because I said the capacities of Hyperloop are a lot lower than HS2, then it's not really offering an alternative proposition. Um, So in that way, um, HS2 will remain the focus for the UK. Um, the DFT have written a position paper on Hyperloop, which was launched just over a year ago now. Um, they said that Hyperloop is at least a couple of decades away for the UK. Um, so their, their view is that they'll continue to monitor the development of Hyperloop elsewhere. They are keen to support the design, development and delivery of Hyperloop, particularly with the UK workforce. Um, and they also are continuing to explore the potential application of Hyperloop as a transport mode for the UK and I know that they did a feasibility study last year on that so it's something that they are still looking at. Um, Innovate, um, who obviously provide funding for uh, new innovations, they have no specific funding pot for Hyperloop um, although there are lots of funding um, schemes that can be accessed um, and could could have applications for Hyperloop. So an example would be um, that my company is working with uh, Magway, which is a freight system which operates within a tube and has a lot of similarities to Hyperloop, it just doesn't go as fast. And Innovate are funding that, that project, so through the work that's going on with that, then obviously there'll be um, good learnings that can be applied to Hyperloop and we can demonstrate to the world that we have some of the good skill sets that will be relevant to Hyperloop, um, even though it's not directly Hyperloop itself. Transport Catapult Systems are also working with Innovate UK, so they... Um, wrote a report last year and they also launched an industry conference to get anybody that anybody and everybody that's interested in Hyperloop together. Um, and their focus is all about how can we package up and promote um, our skill base as a UK um, PLC to develop Hyperloop elsewhere. So how can we come together and, and do that and make sure that we're having a part to play in that kind of whole debate. Um, so I think for now, um, the, the biggest chance for Hyperloop is abroad, so you mentioned the UAE. Um, there's also work going on in Saudi Arabia. They're looking at connecting their capital city with their commercial hub, which are quite a significant distance away from each other, and also how they can use Hyperloop to um, enhance links with, links with neighbouring countries such as the UAE. Um, the difference between, say, Saudi Arabia and the UK is that they have a strong political and economic support behind Hyperloop, a much more favourable landscape, and also I think with that kind of will and enthusiasm, they can change their like standards and legislation a lot quicker than we might be able to do achieve in the UK. It's different doing things like this in democracies, right? Exactly. Um, I think you just need to look at well, a lot of the challenges you mentioned there for the UK are, are very real, and, and I think you know I, I personally have some cynicism as to whether this type of thing would would ever come to the UK, um, and and I think some of the public debate and the political pushback um, to HS2 you know, would, would almost certainly reappear for any sort of idea of um, public spend on Hyperloop. Exactly. Um, Especially we, if we ditched HST right now to come jump on that ship. Abs- absolutely, absolutely. So, so maybe, maybe we'll be a, a, a follower, um, yes. if, 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 at, if at all. Yeah. We'll wait to see what happens in UAE and Saudi Arabia. Um, so finally, um, just wanted to ask about um, sort of a bit, bit more of a broader um, question for... Um, some of our our transport planners um, and transport professionals listening. Um, uh, 
how how does Hyperloop sort of help with some of the the bigger the bigger um, challenges facing our populations, our societies that that many of us transport industry professionals are, are are very much focused on at the minute? So I'm thinking things like congestion, population growth, sustainability, um, and these types of things. What's what's Hyperloop bring to to helping to solve some of those challenges? Yeah, so if we look at those in turn again, so congestion um, is a bit of a mixed bag. Um, so uh, Hyperloop would certainly help congestion on motorways, so Highways England might be uh, keenly interested in it um, because obviously it's an intra-city um, transport system, so it will um, you know, take freight and, and cars off the roads. So that would be great. Um, but from a, a city perspective, it will not help congestion because it's not going to be an intercity um, system. And arguably the biggest issue um, around congestion is in our cities. We see the uh, rise of consumerism, you know, increase of deliveries and vans, etc. Uh, Hyperloop won't really combat that. So it's, um, yeah, it can only really help the, the motorway congestions. From a population growth, um, again, it would be a mixed bag. Um, so from a housing perspective, the growth of populations, increased urbanisation has led to housing shortages in London um, and, and other similar places. Um, Hyperloop could serve to connect those major cities with other cities within the UK and therefore people could live outside of the of London and commute on a daily basis. So yes, it would help things around housing shortages. And um, But the, some of the kind of counter-arguments to that could be that because we talked about the fact that Hyperloop has limited capacity, um, that wouldn't be able to support major commuting volumes. And another thing is that if the costs of Hyperloop were a lot higher than what were originally proposed by Musk, which I believe they would be, then that is not a true um, acceptable cost for commuters. Um, yes, the mega-rich can afford that, but Joe Public wouldn't be able to afford that commuting cost. So therefore, there potentially wouldn't be any benefit in terms of housing. Um, what I don't think Hyperloop would help with is in terms of transport demand. Um, so we know that the UK trains are running at maximum capacity and the situation is only going to get worse as populations grow. And that's why we are investing in, in HS2. Um, but as I said, you know, the capacities are quite limited in terms of Hyperloop, so it's not going to be able to um, help with that growing transport demand particularly. I mean, it can be used alongside Hyper, um, HS2, but not necessarily as an alternative. And also, I think that Hyperloop will serve to change transport demand, so those um, that will find it easier to travel will just then start travelling more. Um, so it might not alleviate transport demand at all. From a sustainability perspective... Um, if the low-carbon design of Hyperloop is realised, then yes, it could help in some way to decarbonise the transport sector. Um, so some examples could be um, things like removing um, short-haul flights within the UK. Um, so they're kind of obviously very bad in terms of greenhouse gases from domestic aviation. Um, also, uh, a slight displacement of passengers um, from rail to Hyperloop could help free up some capacity on the rail, uh, particularly for freight. Um, but I don't think unless you know Hyperloop suddenly shoots up everywhere, there's going to be a major kind of impact on sustainability. Um, the, so, yeah. ju- the jury's most definitely out. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm going to finish just by putting you on the spot, then Rosalind, and to ask you to give me a year when you think uh, you'll be taking your first Hyperloop journey here in the UK, and it you can say never if you want. Okay, well, uh, I'm ever the optimist, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe that Hyperloop could eventually happen, um, and I'm going to go for oh, 2081, which would be my 100th birthday. Good answer, good answer. 
Um, that's been a really, really interesting conversation, uh, Rosalind. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. Thank you very much for inviting me. Whether you're an expert on Hyperloop or not, I hope you pick something up from listening to today's episode of the podcast. Do get in touch with us um, on social media or email and please subscribe to the podcast through your usual podcast channel. Thanks for listening. All Aboard is an ODI Leeds production hosted by Neil McClure, edited by Stuart Lowe, music credit to Lata. If you want to continue the conversation or if you have suggestions for future topics, you can get in touch with us on Twitter using at ODI Leeds and the hashtag All Aboard. Thank you.